The lamp burns sure within, though serfs supply the oil. It matters not the busy wick at her phosphoric toil. The slave forgets to feel the lamp burns golden on unconscious that the oil is out as that the slave is gone. I'm Jericho Brown. And I'm Brian Janae, but you can call me Breezy. This is The Slave is Gone, the show that talks back to Apple TV's Dickinson. We explore what's historically true, what's emotionally true, what works for us and what doesn't in the Apple TV series about Emily Dickinson's coming of age. And because we're poets who are fascinated by Dickinson's verse, we always bring it back to the poetry. Hey, Breezy. Hey, Jericho. Great to be here to talk about Dickinson, this show that has so many people discovering and rediscovering the poet we both love. And I'm glad we can have a wide open conversation about this show to celebrate what we like, criticize what we don't, and to go some places it doesn't. With the help of our rogue scholar, Aoife Murray, who we turn to when we've got questions about the historical truth of Dickinson's life and the world she lived in. For sure. So let's get started with this first episode where Dickinson is writing inspired in her bedroom early in the morning before being interrupted by her sister, Lavinia who's come to tell Emily their mother wants her to fetch a pail of water. When Emily asks why their brother Austin can't do it, Lavinia reminds her that he's a boy. Which Emily calls bullshit. Because it is. Now, of (laughs) course, Emily's mother is trying to prepare her for a prosperous marriage. And when Emily comes to the kitchen, her mother announces that a suitor is coming to call. When the suitor, George Gould, arrives, it turns out Emily already knows him from her lit club. Uh, She in no way tries to make herself appealing to George, and she tells him when her mother's out of earshot that she cannot marry him because she has literary aspirations and because she loves somebody else. And not another young man, because that would be too normal, but Death, who she says is sexy. George tries to win Emily over by promising to get her poem published in the college magazine under her name. Emily knows her father won't like it, but she goes for it, and George goes for it too. He kisses Emily though she's clearly not feeling it. We've all been there, I'm sure. This may be because she's in a secret romantic relationship, AKA a situationship with her best (laughs) friend, Sue Gilbert, who she discovers is engaged to her brother, Austin. The two girls sneak off to the apple orchard and Emily asks Sue to make two promises. First, that she won't move to Michigan. And second, that she love her more than her brother. Sue is honest in her response, reminding Emily that her fiance will decide about the move. They share a passionate kiss as rain comes down. I was actually really startled by that moment and excited by it. Really? Yeah, like I was like, oh, she is kissing this girl on TV. Sue is enjoying herself. She is a free, liberated woman. I guess I'm just from the South, but she ain't got, she got to do that by having sex with a brother and a sister, though, Breezy. Because the brother is going to provide for her. 
And Emily is going to provide for her. She's getting provided for. And shouldn't we all be? Yeah, that's true. I'm probably jealous. It has been a long quarantine, even though we are out there. I used to be fast, but I never slept with siblings. That's fair. That's probably practical. Are we recording this? Because it's important that people know. (laughs) That you haven't done uh, any siblings yet? (laughs) Not that I haven't, but that Sue has. And will continue to. That's right. She's setting it up. She's living the poly dream. It's just a little complicated that they're brother, sister, but that's... That's why it's a situationship. In the next scene at the Dickinson family dinner table, there is big news. Mr. Dickinson, Emily's father, announces that he's running for Congress and that he's building a house for Sue and for Austin. And Emily tells the family about her poem, which is going to be published in the college newspaper. Mm -hmm. Her father calls this scandalous and tells her she'll ruin the family good name. We then see Emily in a red dress paying a visit to Death, uh, who's played by Wiz Khalifa. (laughs) She asks him when he will take her away. He disappoints her by saying it will be a long time, but prophesies that she'll be the only Dickinson remembered in 200 years. I guess Death knows what he's doing. He also says that he'll take away many lives in the Civil War, a war that will divide the nation. Later that night, Emily and her father reconcile. Lying next to each other in Emily's bed, she promises not to leave him and extracts a promise from him to hire a maid. The episode ends with her finishing her poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. It's interesting to start a show at 4 a.m. because it pretty much lets us know we're going to be there all day, right? We're starting at 4 in the morning and we're going to keep pushing forward. Uh, The show makes it very clear early on from Jump that uh, it's going to tackle things, but from a a contemporary perspective, in spite of the fact that we are set in the 1800s. Yeah, and I loved the invitation to imagine her writing process, particularly considering the fact that she had to write on those scraps. So what is revision to her? What is sort of the building of a poem when you have to get it down on paper right the first time? I found myself having so much respect for what early writers went through and experienced to make their craft because you get a line at the well, you don't have any paper. And just the discipline it would have taken and the attention to calling to hold that line with you and to be keeping it, reciting it, reworking it in your head as you hauled that water back. Of course, the water was half out of the pails by the time she got back. She had to get back in time before she forgot that line. I love the way the show sort of invites us to think about the writing process, but also the way your time period and your tools shape the way you write. This idea that George, upon becoming a husband, would be very different from what he is as a suitor and as a friend. As a suitor and a friend, yes, he supports her work, but she pretty directly says to him, oh, you think you'll be supporting my work, but once you become a husband, you won't be doing that anymore. Whether she stays in the house or not, she feels like she's going to have to somehow escape those traditions. Her character feels impractical. We all want to escape housework. And so why not go into the place where at least if you have to cook and clean, you can publish your poems? But I think what we've given here is someone who doesn't like practicality at all. She's really silly. We are given the same trouble that you and I have as poets. And that is the trouble of translating what we do to other people. You know, you tell somebody you're a poet and they just don't think you're working. They don't think you're getting anything done. And she says at one point, um, I just want to spend my time thinking. 
But even I, as a poet watching it, I feel the same way you do, Breezy. You got to eat. And if you got to eat, you got to cook. And she really doesn't want to do anything. And I think that's part of what we get of her that is not just a poet, but also a teenager, sort of romanticizing the fact of being a poet. And I see that in a lot of young people, too. Uh, I'm happy that I can ask these questions of our rogue scholar, Aoife Murray. Hi, Jericho. Hi, Breezy. Aoife, is it possible that, that Dickinson was in the apple orchard kissing Sue in real life? Yes, sure. And they really did have an affair. We have scholars who have written about or are writing about that, Martha Nell Smith. There's another person, Kate Anton, that a book came out, I think back in the 60s, about Dickinson's homoerotic relationship with Kate Anton. I think of her as omnivorous. Come on, omnivorous? Just like me, very hungry. Wait, so who's Kate? Kate Anton, another girlfriend. Oh, she had two girlfriends? Emily Dickinson was getting it. I thought she stayed in her room. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's what everybody told me in high school and growing up. Like, there wasn't a world where I could imagine that Emily was out here getting it. And especially not getting it with other women. And I feel like that's what's wrong with American education. I should have known she was queer. I would have been a lot more excited, a lot quicker, personally. It is interesting, though, when you're queer in American history, there's just no one. I mean, it's it. people want us to believe that there was no one else, not that you were queer, but that you were somehow asexual is a better fit or a better idea for the way to think of someone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's we aren't even allowed to sort of imagine a world, particularly with lesbian relationships, you know, where it where it could have been happening in secret. You know, it's just sort of that's just not how they thought then. You know, it's just sort of there's just a complete erasure. So it is exciting to see this show sort of reclaiming and celebrating her queerness in this show and sort of the complicated, you know, like letting her have so many love interests and be so sensual and instead of sort of that recluse alone virginal and alone in her room. In spite of her uh, relationship to Sue and her love for Sue, there does there is a divide between the two of them. Well, maybe Austin is enough of a divide. Uh, Austin is Emily Dickinson's brother. There's a point in the episode where Austin is performing oral sex on Sue as he asks her to marry him, uh, and so she's saying yes in um, in a point of climax, and he takes that yes to mean yes, I will marry you. By the way, I think this is a wonderful way to propose to people if anybody's looking for, um, if you're looking for a sure, a sure yes, you know, get down on one knee and get started. But the other divide that's between them is the divide in, in class and in wealth. Sue says to, to Emily Dickinson that Emily has a perfect life is what Sue says. And, and uh, Dickinson is hurt by that. She says, you think my life is perfect? And yet uh, there is a way that the the first episode goes a long way in letting us know that the Dickinson family has six horses, that they do not live in the Irish shanties with the stable boys. So they want us to know that they live in the same house that the great grandfather once lived in. And I think that being a product of that kind of wealth has a lot to do with Dickinson's naivete and a lot to do with Sue's having to be more mature in many ways. Yes, I I totally agree with that, Jericho. And it's a little heartbreaking, that moment when after Sue is saying she has had to bury so much of her family and is really pleading for Emily to see, you know, where she's at, that Emily in that moment is just like, but woe is me, you know, with all of my comforts. 
that I am being asked to like help prepare the food that I eat. She's so, so insensitive to Sue, who she claims to love. You know, like, why couldn't... I understand sort of her jealousy that her brother gets to marry Sue. Of course, of course. But also, Sue is going to be closer to you. You know, Sue is going to be cared for and fed and not have to be out here worried about where her next meal is going to come from. Isn't that what you want for your beloved? We do have that as a guide, I think, for how the series will go, because part of what the series is about, and I think part of who the series is trying to speak to, is uh, teenagers who can be insensitive. People who are spoiled and not know that they are spoiled. People who at the dinner table might say something like, um, and not a direct quote, but something like, uh, I, I sometimes feel like I'm a slave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, I'm enslaved, uh, more or less, you know, comparing sort of the experience of being a woman to the experience of enslavement. And, and then the irony of that is that someone who is experiencing a certain kind of um, enslavement of the mind, at least, her mother responds to her the same way I would respond to her. You're not a slave. You're just spoiled. And yet she does have to deal with, I mean, her mother tells her that she's useless and her mother gets all of her own value from serving her husband and from serving her children and from cooking and cleaning the house. But also from like providing a necessary service. I feel like sometimes what feels like post-apocalyptic pandemic times, what I've heard from some poets is, wow, I have no practical skills. What am I going to do? Should I need to keep myself alive? It was weird how I was looking for a way to view the mother that didn't see her as a victim of her time. She has control of her home. And yes, that control is superseded by that of her husband, what she wants. She does speak her voice, right? She, she says she doesn't want him to go. Uh, she says Emily needs to get married and get out of my house and, and contribute. What do you think, Aoife? You're right, Breezy. I mean, because she actually even states it. When Emily says, let's get a maid. And the mother says no. And that's actually what happened. The mother was resistant and the girls wanted it. I I think this episode in many ways is just about choices, about the fact of options, uh, who has them and who doesn't. And sometimes you have them and don't know you have them. So if you don't know you have them, you might as well not have them. Dickinson's mother is part of the reason why she's so good at what she does is she hasn't imagined that there's anything else that she could do in her times have not necessarily allowed for those imaginations. Part of the reason Emily herself I think is very bad at characterizing what a world would look like is because the world doesn't look like that. She hasn't figured out yet how she plans to eat and live. Part of that really does have to do with not knowing what the other options are or not having them. We find at the dinner table that a lot of people have options. The father has the option of running for Congress. That's something he can imagine for himself. Lavinia the sisters, she wants the option of having suitors come visit her. And her mother is like, I really like you working in the house. Dickinson, on the other hand, does not have the option. We didn't find out for certain at the dinner table that she does not have the option of becoming the poet she dreams of being. Uh, Because when she does find a way to get a poem published, her father is irate with her in ways that Earlier parts of the show show him as completely tender, and later parts of the show show him as completely tender. Uh, He's completely angry in that moment that she has disgraced his family name. And so she figures out pretty quickly that that's not an option for her. 
it was interesting that she chose to bring that up at the dinner table. I know it's sort of necessary for the plot. She knew her father. She said she'd read his pamphlet on the way women should behave already. So if you know your father is this controlling, wouldn't you take that, do so silently or marry the man who's trying to publish you? Emily's choices are incredibly limited. Publish quietly in secrecy or marry this man who you don't really want to marry and maybe get to publish more openly. But Breezy, if he marries him, she's going to be spitting out babies. When is she going to get to write? You got a very ambitious poet here. And she knows her parents both come from families with nine kids. Lots of her friends' mothers are dying. She's got friends who are dying. So people are dropping regularly in the 19th century. She wants to spend all of her time thinking. And it seems to me we're supposed to understand is that the only other option is death. What's fascinating to me is the level at which her father seems to understand that and does not understand that at all. He sort of looks like he's going to, the way the actor is holding his face. He becomes one of the creepiest people I've ever seen. You know, by the end of the show, he's getting in the bed with her. I was like, what is going on? Don't leave me. Don't get married. Stay with me. It's really strange. He's saying, don't get married. Stay with me. And he has created an option that no one has thought of except for him, he says, as his son is getting married. Stay with you and do what? So there's a way that he does understand her as a genius. And he's also horrendously inappropriate. When he got in that bed, and you know, we're watching this with our 21st century eyes, but when he got in that bed, I was like, I need to call Aoife and see what this man was doing to his daughter. So there is a really interesting tension in the show. He is such a conflicted character and causes her so much conflict. Because he runs hot and cold. Yeah, it's like, stay, don't write, but I'll give you a maid so that you'll be happy. That concurs with what I think occurred. I think she made that case. We need to get a maid, and here are the reasons. Mm -hmm. Here's a girl who's been listening to lawyers her entire life, because her brother turns out to be a lawyer, too. She laid it out. Her mother's health is at risk. She doesn't want to lose her mother, like Sue lost her mother. They might get married off. Vinny had so many suitors. She was in their laps in the house. And if the daughters marry off, they need to have a maid to sort of help the mother. Help mom. It's interesting that they don't put that in the show. I would have been so much more enamored with an Emily that was clever enough to say, well, parents, I might get married. Or mother, I care for you so much. Don't you need some help? I think it's fascinating as opposed to just sort of whining. Actually, that's not their first maid. When the mother and father are getting ready to move into their first house, there's an African-American woman whose name we do not know who helps get the house ready. All through that early marriage, Emily's mother gets help when she has to. They did get along with poor white Yankee, black Yankee workers to help them from time to time. But they're in a family with two able-bodied daughters, and it's a small family. And the mother said, we can do it ourselves. And she's on her way to dinner. We finally get the first view of a Black character. Uh, and we get that view for about three good seconds. And he is chopping the head of a chicken, which I don't believe, because I actually think he would have wrung the neck first. Absolutely. 
Aoife, who are the Black people in Amherst at this point? Are they people who would have been formerly slaves? Or are they people who would have been descendants of indentured servants? Is that about the highest opportunity you might have being a maid? What were the Black men doing? (laughs) Cutting off chickens' necks? So slavery's been outlawed in Massachusetts. Wells Newport, who was a stable hand for the Dickinsons, and his father, Amos, was a gardener for the Dickinsons. Amos's grandfather, captured on the coast of Africa, brought to Massachusetts, sued for his freedom in a Hatfield court. These are Northerners who have ancestors who were slaves. Then later, people start escaping and coming up from the South around the wartime, which is our period in the series. Uh, Henry Jackson, really prominent man. He's a teamster. He is incredibly important to several generations of Dickinson men. He's moving money. But there's a client-patron situation. If you are an African-American man in town or the immigrants who later come, that you have a patron-client relationship so that you're protected. Essentially, you have to have a job. And they had, I mean, there were jobs, I just saw it over and over and over again among the Irish men and the African-American men that they had someone in the white community who's powerful so that they're protected because they're in Western Massachusetts, they have less allies. So there's all these people who want to work for people like the Dickinson because that's a powerful ally. I'm thinking about a little girl who's their age, Angeline Palmer, is probably already working because they're from the poorest part of Amherst. And I think about Angeline didn't starve. Angeline grew up. There's an almshouse. She has a grandmother. She has a brother. And that's what could have been Sue's, could have been where the path Sue took. She does marry up. That sounds like the reality of living Black in America. Of course, this poor Black child was required to labor for food, even if she had family, because they all would have been laboring for next to nothing. One thing it brings up for me is how little the writers do to critique Emily's naivete and her lack of class consciousness, or like how much she is a product of her class. And you know what? In real life, later she begins to get insights into just how difficult life is for the people that work for her. Poor and rich live really close together. This is what's true about this story. Her complete self-centeredness. And I want to give her a little bit of room because she's got this pressure of writing, pushing up for her voice, but her callousness to Sue's predicament, what you're registering about it is true. She was like that as a teen. So the Dickinsons would have employed Irish people and Black people at the same time? So yes and no because it does begin to make a transition around 1855. A transition from the Black servants to the white? Yeah, white Yankees, Black Yankees, to starting to be a lot more immigrants in the picture. Well, it's not that African-American workers disappear, but... I said people's tastes for them do. Not only people's taste for Black workers, but I'm sure the Irish people didn't have very much taste for them as began to think of them as competition, or maybe they began to think of one another as competition, um, trouble we still seem to be living with in the United States among one another. It's interesting to hear you talk about that vulnerability, Aoife, considering how little the show does in the early episodes to hint at it or to acknowledge that reality. There are a lot of scenes where we have Black extras at the funeral scene. 
as if folks would have been intermingling closely in the same church on the same level as one another. They don't allude to that caste division as you divided, or to me, what sounds like Northern Dixie. And it's also interesting that they're perpetuating that mythology as they use African-American culture, cultural references, like with the Aesop Rocky song that appears well before any Black person has spoken. I'm not going to say it's strange or disappointing. It's kind of expected, but it's, it's weird. It's not okay. That crowd scene after the funeral, I see a couple of men who could be from the local Indian people or African-American men. I was actually really glad to see those men only because it showed where the poor Native or the African-American community live in relationship to the Dickinsons. It's cheek by jowl. It's also interesting, what are we supposed to take from this Black Death character? Are we suspending reality? Is this like a Brandy Cinderella situation? Even though we're in a very real United States, is that what you're asking of me to imagine? But, but then he sort of alludes to the war, which is very real. I mean, it's the absolute rebellion. I mean, even now, for many people, the absolute rebellion to sleep with somebody outside of your race, we're supposed to be getting the teenage rebellious nature that character gets to cuddle up with Wiz Khalifa as death. That seems to make sense to me, except that it doesn't really translate since the show is interested in being a sitcom. Similarly, though, I think we're supposed to understand something completely rebellious. I mean, this is why we have a Black rapper playing the part. Uh, I don't know if we get that message because of how things have gone on in such a silly way, a purposeful silly way earlier in the episode. But it is interesting to see a Black man in a movie playing the part of the person who's going to harvest the deaths of the Civil War. Yes. I think the show is good at showing us that she sees what others don't. It's not just that she's enamored with death. She sees death as a literal being who takes her on carriage rides every night, and that's their date. They cuddle in the carriage. And I thought that was really a wonderful way of talking about what poets might be like, but also a weird way of talking about why people don't understand poets. What I love about this show is that not only is there the appearance of death in the form of Wiz Khalifa, but also the appearance of the poems in and of themselves. It's as if she was driven to write them because at the well she thinks of a line, and then that line comes up in script at the bottom, sometimes in the upper right of the screen. They are being literally made in front of us. And she's not doing that, and yet she is doing that. If I go back and I look at poems I've written a while ago, I think, who wrote that? Especially when they're good. I'm like, oh, I know. I wish I could do that again. I love how the episode amounts to a poem, that the lived experience of all of these people is what leads to her completing the poem. It's always seemed so strange to me that this poem is the centerpiece of this show, uh, no matter what else happens in the show. I, I, I want to ask you, what does it feel like when something comes to you and you have to write? What does it feel like? For me, it feels like, thank God. I don't know what feeling that utterance is. I feel like that something that I might have is outside of me. Like I get to invent something new when I'm driven to write. I think part of what enchants me about the show and about the real life Dickinson herself, 
I feel like nothing can stop me from doing it and that nothing should. And that it's important that I make what I make because I don't know what it's going to be. And this is going to sound very strange. I have the sense that because I don't know what it's going to be, that's all the more reason for me to get it done because of what it could be. And my conception of poetry is like real useful things. I think of poems the way we think of microwaves and and automobile. Uh, When I'm making a poem, I'm thinking, I got to finish this thing. It could be a refrigerator. I mean, this could keep people's food, which is absolutely silly. Yet I do understand as a reader of poetry that poetry does things for me that I can't name, that it enchants and enlivens and makes me better. It makes me more aware of my humanness in ways that I would not be able to narrow down in the same way that I can narrow down what the refrigerator does or what the microwave does. I guess it's clear that I am recording in my kitchen. What about you, Breezy? Wow. I feel like the feeling of writing is just a feeling of being called to attention, the feeling of being called into alignment. That said, I used to have this supreme sense of urgency. I used to feel that poems were kind of like cement. And after a few days, the cement dried and that was it. And I'm so grateful to be writing in 2021 and not in Dickinson's day so that I have the cloud keeping track of all of my scraps because it feels like I'm sort of like meditating on the idea and I don't always know when the rest of that, whatever it is, is going to come to being, but eventually it gets there. Breezy, those scraps that you have up on the cloud, Dickinson was writing on scraps and we still have them. The reason I wanted to ask you that question about the physical experience of writing a poem was Yesterday, I was listening to Martha Ackman talk about this. Martha wrote a recently released biography of Dickinson called These Fevered Days. Dickinson actually wrote in a letter what it feels like, that she feels overtaken. And I have that feeling of like something is welling up. And one of the things Dickinson wrote about is she feels bare and charred. And I was so grateful that Martha reminded me of this. It's like she's almost depleted. Mm. I have a poem, actually, that I wanted to read. Uh, and I hope you brought a poem too, Breezy. We said we were going to bring poems that sort of respond to the show. I did. I chose this poem because it's really a poem about work. And much of this episode, an episode about the fact of work and getting work done, it's a poem called Labor. Labor. I spent what light Saturday sent sweating and learned to cuss cutting grass for women kind enough to say they couldn't tell the damned difference between their mowed lawns and their vacuumed carpets just before handing over a $5 bill rolled tighter than a joint and asking me in to change a few light bulbs. I called those women old because they wouldn't move out of a chair without my help or walk without a hand at the base of their backs. I called them old, and they must have been. They're all dead now, dead and in the earth I once tended. The loneliest people have the earth to love and not one friend their own age, only mothers to baby them and big sisters to boss them around. Women, they want to please and pray for the chance to say please to. I don't do that kind of work anymore. My job 
is to look at the childhood I hated and say, I once had something to do with my hands. That's from New Testament. Yes. I can remember reading that poem. Thank you. In my room in Boston. Come on, in my room in Boston. I love, too, the way this poem invites us to think about the care of the women in your life. I was also going to read one about work, or I was going to read a love poem. Oh, well, read the love poem. Because I was thinking about Emily and Sue... I always read a love poem because, you know, that means if people make love after they hear this podcast, it'll be because of you. Well, uh, I'll share that credit with Malcolm Tariq, who this poem's title is borrowed from. It's called, What If the Ancestors Are Watching Us Fuck? Because we are learning each other, my lover rises to pull Morrison from the shelf. Because she and I can both feel Miss Tony staring over her readers, don't misquote me. Because the essay said, we don't know who we belong to anymore. Because I want to belong here with this girl and her book in bed, tending only to our pleasure and the approval of ghosts. That's beautiful. I mean, and that that really brings us back around to that sapphic power that we were talking about and which we now know was also coming through in her poems. If you read things like the master letters too. Oh, that's my kind of love when you're pulling books out. Sort of made me think of the way Emily sort of wanted she and Sue to become great poets together. How one of the things they shared was their love for literature and their desire to be remembered in words. And I remember Aoife once perhaps that Sue helped edit some of Emily's Dickinson's poems. The majority of her letters went to Sue. And the most famous poem that went back and forth is Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers. And Martha Nell Smith, who has written a lot about their relationship as homoerotic. And there's many people who don't think that there's a homoerotic relationship. You know, there's a lot of controversy about that. There's just a lack of imagination. Because as soon as I saw the show, I was just like, oh, they fuck. Please tell me they fuck. Please, 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 please. Uh, (laughs) And low. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this first episode of The Slave is Gone. That's Jericho Brown. His book, The Tradition, won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. His other books include Please and The New Testament. And that's Brian Janay. They're the author of Blessed Are the Peacemakers, which won the Cave Canham Northwestern University Press Poetry Prize, and the book After Jubilee. Big thanks to our rogue scholar, Aoife Murray, author of Made as Muse, How Servants Changed Emily Dickinson's Life and Language. Aoife and Lisa Rothman are the show's executive producers. Matt Martin is the advising producer. Marianne Zahorski is the audio engineer and editor. Our advisors are Dr. Marilyn Nelson and Dr. Terry Bonhorst Blackhawk. 
We also want to thank Cynthia Harbison and everyone at the Jones Library in Anhurst, as well as the Boutel Day Poetry Center at Smith College. Thanks also to the International Media Project for being our nonprofit fiscal sponsor and to the many individuals who contributed to make this episode possible. Visit theslaveisgone.com to find bonus audio about how tenuous freedom was for Black people, even in the Yankee North, and whether Emily's mom would have freaked out if she found George kissing her on the side of the house. Plus, much more about Emily Dickinson's life, art, and the society in which she lived. We'll give her the last word. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun, or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill for only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity.